Well, have you ever heard the saying that God won't give you more than you can handle? God won't give you more than you can handle. You know, there's some truth in that saying. There's some truth in it. But I'm going to be making the case this morning from the scriptures that maybe a a better way to put that, what's being gotten at there in that saying would be this, that actually sometimes God does give us more than we can handle. God does give us more than we can handle on our own, in our own ability, in our own strength. God sometimes calls us to what is humanly impossible in order to test our faith, in order to show us that with God, nothing is impossible. God sometimes brings us to to hills that are just too high for us to to mount and and brings us to, to rivers that are just too wide for us to cross in our own ability so that we will look to him in desperation and mount up, as it were, on wings as eagles, and so that we can see him work wonders and and part the waters in front of us so that we can walk through on dry ground. In other words, God likes to put us in situations where our faith is put to the test, situations where we can't really make it through in our own power, in our own ability, so that we'll be forced to to lean on him and rely on his power and see him work wonders on our behalf. You know, we say we trust God, but how do we respond when we are faced with difficult situations in life? When we're faced with, maybe humanly speaking, an impossible task, something that just seems beyond us, where do we turn? Do we look within Do we look around us to to try to look around in this world for some some trick or some some means to get accomplished what God is calling us to? Do we compromise? Do we throw up our hands and give up or do we run the other way? Or do we look to him? Do we lift up our eyes to the hills from where our help comes from? Well, this morning, we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew. It will be in Matthew chapter 10 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there to Matthew 10. We're going to be looking at the first 15 verses of Matthew 10 this morning. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you can find this passage on page 764. Page 764. Matthew chapter 10. Last week, we thought about the amazing compassion of Jesus, how he saw the crowds, And he had compassion on them, even though those same crowds would have no compassion on him when he was in his darkest hour, when he was to be killed and and crucified in order to give life to sinners. And yet he saw them knowing what they were capable of, knowing what was within them, knowing their need and their guilt as no one else could. And he still had compassion on these crowds. And from this heart of compassion, he instructed his disciples to pray. To pray to the Lord of the harvest. Because he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll raise up more laborers. 
for his harvest, more laborers to extend his compassion to the people. And that's where we left off last time. So follow along now in chapter 10, starting from verse 1. Jesus, it says of Jesus that he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. All right, so briefly, what's going on here? What I'm going to do this morning is there's, there's a few things as we read through this passage that might make us kind of scratch our heads and think like, okay, what's going on here? Got shaking dust off your feet. You've got a seeming kind of exclusivity. You know, don't go to the don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, only go to these people, cast out demons and, and heal the sick and raise the dead. Are, are we supposed to do that? We've got a lot of things here that, that need to be answered. So what I'm going to try to do this morning is explain the text, just explain what's going on in this original context. And then I'm going to draw out two main takeaways that apply to us. So explain it and then two main points of application, two takeaways, two lessons that would apply to our lives. So what we see here in this passage is the Lord of the harvest sending out laborers into his harvest. Remember, Jesus had said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send out laborers. And what do we see here? Jesus, he's sending out 12 and he is He even calls them laborers. He says the laborer is worthy of his food. And so now we see their prayers being answered, the need being more fully met. And Jesus selects his laborers, here the 12, who'd become known known as the 12 apostles. 
And that word apostle just means sent ones. These are his special sent people, sent on a mission. And he gives them some of his authority. And he instructs the 12 as to uh, where and to whom they must go, what they must say, what they must do, and how they must prepare and travel and, and react to those who either receive them or reject them and their message. And then there's this solemn warning to those who would reject their message and reject them. And so the, maybe the first question that comes to our minds is, why such a strong warning at the end of our passage in verse 15? I mean, Jesus has, we've just seen his compassion. And, and yet now there's this warning that it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for those who reject Jesus's messengers. Well, Sodom and Gomorrah, if you're familiar with the story, were, were two cities that God literally burned to the ground by, by raining fire and burning sulfur on them. We read of this in the book of Genesis. And these two cities were proverbial for their wickedness. And because of that, because they'd become such a, a stench on the face of the earth, God burned them from the face of the earth. And this, this served as a stern warning. And so why does Jesus, why does he say that it will be worse off for those that reject his messengers? Why does he say it will be worse for them on the day of judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah? And the reason for that, in order to understand that, we need to understand that Jesus is coming as a king. He's coming as a king. And he's telling his messengers here to go and, and proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. And because he's coming as a king, and he's coming to his own people, and he's coming to those who had the prophets and who had the scriptures and who were who should have known the signs and should have been expecting this king to come. And because they were going to see so much evidence, in the face of all that evidence, in the face of seeing the dead raised and all these miracles and signs and wonders, if after all that, if after all that they rejected their king, that would only make them all the more guilty to, to, to reject him in the face of all that evidence. It would have just shown how hard and sinful and selfish their hearts were against God. It was shown how rebellious they were against their king. And so Jesus, he tells his, his messengers, if they don't receive you, shake the dust off your feet as a, as a warning sign against them. Now, this was an ancient Jewish custom, and they would often do this if they were returning from Gentile lands or from places that they viewed as particularly unclean. And they would just kind of tap the dust off their feet to, to show their, their disdain. You know, this, this place from which I've come was, was filthy, not just in the, in the sense of dirtiness, but spiritually and morally. And the shocking thing here is that Jesus is, is telling his, his messengers to do this to their fellow Jews, to the, their fellow descendants of, of Abraham. And, and basically treating them as if they were Gentiles, if they reject him. If they refuse to welcome their Messiah and their king. And Jesus, he's, it's, this is all to warn them that it will be worse off for them than Sodom and Gomorrah 
on the day of judgment if they reject him. And so this, this completely goes along with Jesus's compassion. Jesus, God is not only compassionate, he's also holy. And he will punish sin. He will judge the world in righteousness. But God has not left us without warning. And here, he wants the warning to come across loud and clear to those who would reject him. And and this serves as a warning not only to these people, but it serves as a warning to us today. Because the New Testament teaches that any who do not believe on the Son are condemned already. The Bible teaches that all of us as human beings have fallen into sin, that we, we all in our own way have rebelled against our rightful king. Yes, we may not be descendants of Abraham according to the flesh. Yes, we may not have be looking forward to the Davidic kingdom in that sense. And yet, God is still our king. He made us. He's our creator. And because of that, he owns us. And, and he deserves our worship and our allegiance and our love. And yet, as, as human beings, we've chosen our own way. As the book of Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And we choose to live for self rather than him. And because of that, we are guilty before him. And if we don't believe upon the Son of God, we are condemned already because of, of the rebellion and the, the treason that we've already committed against our king, our true king. Jesus said that the one who does not believe is condemned already. But on the flip side, he said that whoever believes on the son has life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so this is why God sent his son. This is why Jesus came on a, on a rescue mission, on a salvation mission, one that would cost him his own life, one that would cost him giving up his own place in, in glory and, and humbling himself and coming and walking our dusty streets before he would wear the crown of glory as the promised son of David, this king would first have to rescue his subjects. He would have to wear the crown of thorns and endure the, the curse and the shame that they had incurred the, and pay the penalty that they had incurred because of their sins. This king came first and foremost, not to be served, but to serve, to serve his subjects to be the greatest public servant that this world has ever known and ever will know, to give his life a ransom for many. He suffered and died in the place of sinners as a substitute for them. And now any and all who will believe upon him, you can have your sins forgiven and you can be restored into a right relationship with Jesus as your savior and as your king and enjoy his protection. Brothers and sisters, it's because of this hope, this gospel, that we join together this morning and we can sing with joy in our hearts. And it's in hope of this gospel that we, that we proclaim this, this good news to those around us. 
And if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Jesus, if you haven't turned your life over to him, given him your complete allegiance, just know that you are outside of his protection. And on the day of judgment, you will be under God's judgment. And so run to Jesus, run to him and put yourself in him like like running to a storm shelter in the midst of a, a tornado that's on its way. Go to him because it's only in him that you will be saved. Trust in him. You know, the book of Acts says that that God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance. He's given proof to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. He came the first time to save. He's coming again to judge. And on that day, it will be too late to to be reconciled to God and make things right. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. You don't know how much longer you might have to get right with God. Don't think that maybe tomorrow or next year or when you get a little older and after you've done a little more living that you'll you'll settle with God. None of us are promised even this afternoon. So come to him, surrender to him, surrender to this king while there is time, while there is time for mercy. Are you prepared for the day of judgment? Are you prepared for his second coming? Well, why did Jesus tell his apostles in in verses five and six? Why did he tell them to go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but to go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Doesn't that seem kind of exclusive? Like, you know, I'm taking this this good news of the kingdom, but I'm only taking it to certain people. Well, this exclusivity, going only to the Israelite people, it, it was only a temporary thing. You see, God had... God had promised the Jews that their king would come. They had been long awaiting their Messiah. And so in order to prove God's faithfulness, in order to show them that God had not forgotten them, that the Messiah, that the king that they had been waiting for all these years, that he had come, Jesus wanted to make it abundantly clear to them that he was here, that their king had arrived. And before he went to the other nations, before the good news of the gospel uh, spread to all the Gentiles, he was going to take it first to the Jews. But, but thank goodness, thank God and his grace that it wasn't only for the Jews. You know, Paul and Barnabas say in Acts 13, speaking to the Jews in Asia Minor, they said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. First. First to them, but not only to them. Praise the Lord for that. Because as I look around this room, probably not many of us, if any of us, are physically descendants of Abraham, you know, ethnic Jews. We're Gentiles. And yet this this Messiah, this Jewish Messiah, we we can be in his kingdom. We can be his subjects. We can receive his salvation and his protection, even though... We're strangers. We're, we're not even connected to Abraham physically. And his, his mercy was, 
in his grace and his salvation has gone out to all the nations. Praise the Lord that the gospel has come here to America, to us Gentiles. Praise the Lord for that. And so, but here Jesus is calling his, his 12 here to start with the people of Israel. And because time was short, Jesus's ministry only lasted three years. He wanted to make sure that they'd gone and they would go out to all the cities of Israel and let them know that their Messiah was here and give them an opportunity to receive their king and welcome him. But at the end of Matthew, we see a very different, we see different marching orders, new marching orders that apply to us even today. You know, here in Matthew 10, Jesus says, you know, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, only go to Israel. But at the end of Matthew, he says, go and make disciples of all the nations. All the nations. And this is our main mission, church, Emmanuel Baptist Church here in Springdale, Arkansas. This is our mission, to make disciples of all the nations. Now, obviously, we're not going to make disciples of, of every single nation of the earth, just Emmanuel Baptist, but as part of the 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 broader people of God, those called by grace, this is our call to, to send out missionaries to all the earth, to work together, to bring the gospel to all nations and make disciples of them. Okay, there's, there's probably more that we could talk about in relation to this passage, but I'm going to transition now from explaining the text to now applying it to us. There are two main lessons, two applications for us this morning. You know, Jesus's instructions here, they went to his 12 and they were immediately applicable to them. But even though these are marching orders to the 12 apostles at a certain time in in history, there are still eternal truths that apply to Christians of every age. Matthew didn't record this story just, just out of historical interest. He recorded this story in his, in his gospel of Matthew because it teaches us something about the Savior and it teaches us lessons that apply to us today. And if I were to sum up the main idea, the, the main lesson, I would do it like this. The Lord of the harvest equips his laborers for the work he calls them to do. The Lord of the harvest equips his laborers for the work he calls them to do. We see this specifically in the way he he equips his laborers with authority and with power. And and then he also tells them what to do. He, He equips them with instruction. He doesn't leave them to guess as to what he wants of them. So Jesus, in the same way, he gives us our mission and he gives us the means He gives us what we need to do what he's called us to do. Jesus gives us our mission. Jesus instructs us. You know, God doesn't leave us in the dark today. He doesn't doesn't leave us wondering what his will for our lives is. His first call to any of us is that we would believe upon his son, that we would turn from sin, and that we would bow the knee before this king making him our king, the king of our lives, following him, trusting him, asking him to forgive us of our sins. But from there, he gives us clear instruction on what it looks like to live a life of 
of grateful obedience to this king. And he tells us why. Obviously, it's, it's not in order to earn our way into heaven, but it's out of gratitude that Jesus earned us heaven. It's out of thankfulness for what he's done for us. And he tells us what to do. You know, there's, there's nothing that you need for the Christian life to live according to God's will that God hasn't revealed for you in the scriptures, in this book. It's not as though God finished giving us the Holy Scriptures, giving us the Bible, and then he, as an afterthought, kind of said, whoops, you know what? I wasn't thinking about those, those American Christians in the 21st century. You know what? I, I really blew it on this one. I should have written a few more books. I should have given them some more instructions. Maybe I should add a PS at the end of this letter. No. God in his wisdom has given us a sufficient word. In this book, we have everything we need for life and godliness. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God or the woman of God may be complete equipped for every good work, like the old King James there, thoroughly furnished for every good work, complete, every good work. Not just, not just that God will give you what you need for some good works. God's will for your life, Christian, isn't hidden in nature somewhere, or it's not, it's not in the stars, it's not in tea leaves or tarot cards, It's not waiting to be revealed in in a dream or a vision. God's will for your life is clearly revealed in these scriptures. In the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, Christian, you are completely equipped, completely equipped. Everything essential for you to know, God has given to you in the scriptures. If it's not essential, If it's not essential for you to know in order to live a life for the glory of God, then then it won't be in the scriptures. If it's essential for you to know, then you will find it in the scriptures. God hasn't left us to scratch our heads and wonder what he wants of us. But of course, if his will for us is found in this book, then what does that mean? It means we need to know it. It means we need to study it and and study it carefully and prayerfully. The more we are familiar with this book, the more we know it, the more clarity we will have on what God really wants of us in this life. Jesus told the 12, he told them to raise the dead, to cleanse lepers, to cast out demons. And notice in verse 8, that his instructions here weren't optional for them. He didn't say, you know, maybe if you feel like it, go raise the dead. No, he said, raise the dead. Cast out demons. Heal sickness. This was a command. This was not optional for them. And so when we come to a passage like this, something that we have to do is we have to say, okay, how does this apply to us? Jesus is telling the 12 here to 
to do these miracles and these signs and wonders, does that mean that he expects us to raise the dead and to cast out demons and to heal every sickness? Well, I I don't think that's the case. And the reason I don't think that's the case is that there are obviously some things about these instructions to the 12 that are very unique to their particular mission at this time. For example, he tells them not to go to the Gentiles, but only to the house of Israel. Well, obviously, he doesn't tell us to do that. He tells us to go to all the nations. And also, he, he was giving them these, these commands to do these miracles. And, and I don't see that he's commanded us to raise the dead. So, so church, I don't, I don't believe that we're in sin because we haven't raised any dead to life. That's not to say that God can't do miracles today and that he, he, he might not sometimes do something miraculous through us. But it seems like this was a unique set of commands for the 12 apostles. And they were meant to be, be signs and wonders to prove to the Jews that the kingdom of heaven was breaking in on them in fulfillment of the ancient prophecies. And yet... Just imagine for a second, imagine for a second receiving these marching orders. You know, say you're, you're Thaddeus or you're Bartholomew or you're, you're, you're Peter. And Jesus says to you, raise the dead. Well, that's, that's kind of intimidating, right? You've just been told to do something that's impossible. Might as well tell me, tell me to go pick up Pike's Peak and throw it in the Gulf of Mexico. But the one who gave them the mission gave them also the means to do it. Verse one says that Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. He gave them what they needed to do the job. And this brings us to our our second lesson. Jesus not only gives us our instructions, he also gives us the means he, he gives us what we need to get the job done. Now, if you join a, a road construction crew or an excavation crew, and your boss tells you to go dig a ditch, you're, you're going to expect him to give you the tools needed to do the job. He's obviously not expecting you to go out with your bare hands and start scratching at the dirt to, to dig a ditch. No, your boss is going to provides you with a backhoe or an excavator or something to, to do the project. If he, if he did overlook that and expect you to just go out and scratch the dirt or something, I mean, he probably wouldn't be your boss for very much longer. He'd get fired. You know, he, no, no such incompetent person would last long in that position. And brothers and sisters in the faith, God is not incompetent. He's not incompetent. He knows what needs to be done, and he knows exactly how it needs to happen, and he knows your limitations and your weaknesses, even when he calls you to the task. God doesn't call you to dig a ditch without giving you a backhoe. And so, for example, while apart from God's power, we may, we may not have the strength needed to stand against temptation. You know, Satan is powerful. His temptations come powerfully against us to to draw us away into sin. And yet in the strength that God supplies, 
We have the power to say no. We can stand against temptation because God has promised us help. We can do all things through him who strengthens us. Philippians 4. Listen to what Philippians 4.19 says. It says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Notice, he didn't say, God might supply some of your needs. He says, my God will supply every need of yours. God instructs us through his words so that we'll know what to do. And he, by his spirit, he gives us power so that we'll have the power and the resources to do it. Paul wrote that he could do all things by his own power? No. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Through him. Through the same, the same strength available to the apostle Paul there, brothers and sisters, it's available to us. The Holy Spirit hasn't grown old and weary. He's still just as strong today as he was back then. And through him, we can do everything that he's called us to do. You know, in our, in our weakness, in our, in our little faith, we sometimes forget this. We sometimes start scratching at the dirt with our fingers, and we forget that there's a backhoe all fueled up and ready to roll right behind us. You know, you might read in scriptures, for example, that, that you're called to forgive. Jesus calls us to forgive. And you might think, well, how can I? You know, I've been, I've been hurt so deeply, I can't forgive. I just can't do it, at least not right now. Maybe, maybe one of these days, but I can't forgive, at least not right now. And friend, maybe you can't. But through his power, you can. You can do all things through him who strengthens you. If Jesus calls you to forgive, he will give you the grace needed to forgive. Maybe you've gone through some kind of tragedy in your life, some great loss, some deep pain, and you, you've been walking through the valley of sorrow, and the, the clouds of grief are just weighing over your head, and you're not sure if you'll ever smile again. You might think it's impossible that you'll ever have joy again. But no. You know, didn't Jesus heal unhealable diseases? Didn't he cure the incurable? Didn't he provide hope to the hopeless? He can provide you joy again. He can give you something to smile about again. He can heal even though that grief might seem impossible to ever recover from, he will patiently lead you along and he will heal your soul. Kids in the room, I'm going to speak to you directly for a minute. You know, maybe uh, your parents, sometimes they tell you, you know, you need to forgive your brother. You need to forgive your sister when they do something to you. They tell you, say, say I forgive you. And you say it. You say, I forgive you, but deep down inside, are you really forgiving? Maybe, maybe you feel like, I'm still kind of mad at them. 
I don't know if I'm like, I'm going to say this because, you know, if I don't, I'm going to get another whooping, but, but I'm going to, I don't, I'm still mad at them. Listen, kids. I mean, you, you're doing the right thing to obey your parents, but just know that what God wants of you, he wants you to forgive from the heart. He wants you deep down within to feel a certain way towards your brother and sister, to truly love them, not just to pretend like you're being nice. He wants you to truly forgive them. And you might, you might think, well, how can I do that? I mean, I feel the way I feel. It's, that's, just, that's just the way it is. It's impossible for me to feel any different. Well, listen, it may be impossible for you, but it's not impossible for God. Do you think God can help you love your brothers and sisters and be patient with them and, and truly forgive? Listen, he can. I would encourage you, kids, ask him. Ask him for help. Pray to him, and, and he will help you to truly forgive. He will help you to truly love. Maybe you're... Maybe you're afraid in your evangelism as we're called to go and make disciples. And maybe you're just kind of a, a shy person. You're, you're like, I have a hard time even talking to, to people here at church. How can I, how can I ask them awkward questions and, and ask them how their soul is doing and, and how I can pray for them? And just the thought of it makes you anxious. The thought of sharing the gospel with someone, maybe you have a, a friend or a family member and you know that, Maybe they're not walking with Christ. Maybe they're not truly saved. But you know that if you, if you ask them, if you start probing, they're probably going to get offended with you. Maybe they'll get angry at you. Maybe that'll make the holidays awkward. And you're just struggling, like, how am I going to, I know I need to say something. I know I need to, but how? I'm just, that's just not me. That's not my personality type. I'm not confrontational. Listen. It may be impossible for you, but seek the Lord. You know, Moses, as we read about earlier, as Daniel read for us, he was very fearful. He said, I'm slow of speech. I can't, I can't speak to these people. And what did the Lord say to him? Who made man's mouth? Listen, the Lord can give you courage that you never thought you had. And in fact, courage that you didn't have and courage that you would never be able to have unless he gave it to you. Brothers and sisters, pray, lean on him. You know, think, think again about Jesus' disciples. Raise the dead, Jesus. Impossible, I can't do that. Cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Impossible. But with him, nothing is impossible. With him, you can do all things. So in closing, in closing, I don't know what difficulties you might be facing, what unclimbable mountains might be in your path, what impassable rivers are between you and, and your destination. The difficulty may be great. It may be impossible. But brothers and sisters, remember, God doesn't call you to go at it alone. The Lord who calls you to it, he will get you through it. Lean on him, trust in his strength, and remember how he loves you. And if he's come through for you in your, in your area of greatest need, 
even to the point of sending his own son to hang on the cross for your sins so that you can be reconciled to God through faith. Well, he's not going to leave you hanging. He's not going to leave you without what you need to get the job done. Remember, as you go out of here this morning, Ephesians 2.10, which talks to the, to the believer and it says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, that he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Like a great master contractor, God has planned your work projects. He's planned his will for your life. He's planned the things he's called you to. And listen, he's a good master contractor. He's not going to lead you to do the job and forget to supply you with the strength you need to do it. And so in, in confidence in that, let's go to him in prayer this morning. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do confess that our faith is so often weak. Lord, we, we look and, and we see things that you've called us to and we say, but, but how? I can't do that. Lord, it's true. Lord, help us to remember that what, what you say. I didn't ask you to go at it alone. Help us to remember that you promised to supply every need of ours. Lord, help us to look to you for strength, for boldness, for courage, for the resources to love and to forgive, to give thanks in all circumstances. Lord, help us, we pray, to do the impossible in your strength. May those around us see that it is only through your strength that we are able to do this. And may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.